0: Luke chapter 3. We're just going through the book of Luke. This is what we do here. We take breaks once in a while, but we study the Bible systematically. Nothing fancy about it. Uh, We just get into it verse by verse. Um, I want to entitle this message Dove Power. It overlaps with some of the messages uh, that we've had before. Um, And I I just am preaching on this because, not because it's the theme of the time, but because it's in the text. Uh, It has to do with Dove Power. And I hope none of you are going back to, like, you know, the 1968 revolution against the Vietnam War, where they use that expression. Uh, you know, no, this isn't about that. It's about the Holy Spirit power, which comes in the form of a dove. And so let's look at this passage, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. I'm reading out the TNIV version. It says, When all the people were being baptized by John the Baptist here, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. That's a theme we'll be seeing a lot in the book of Luke about Jesus praying. At every crucial moment, Jesus is praying. And it says that the the Holy Spirit comes down in in a physical form, specifically in the form of a dove. And the point there is John is saying the Holy Spirit is not himself a dove. He comes down in the form of a dove. But he's also saying this wasn't an internal vision that anyone was having. It really was a physical form. In bodily form, the Holy Spirit came down. And then a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And now, what follows this is about 14 uh, verses of genealogy, which I'll be preaching on next week, which maybe sounds really, really boring, but I can t- I'm going to tell you it's not as boring as it sounds. It is pretty boring, I'm telling you, but it's not as boring as it sounds. Uh, and so next week, don't stay away. We're going to be talking about the significance of those genealogies. Um, I haven't found them yet, but I will find one. God will talk to me and and we'll we'll share that. So come back next week. But there follows this this, uh, section on genealogies, which we're going to preach on because we're committed to preaching on every verse out of Luke. But then I want to fast forward to chapter 4, after the genealogies, where we find this. And I'm going to mention this because it loops back into the passage we just read. Uh, In chapter 3, it says this, Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit that just came upon him, he left the Jordan, the Jordan area, and the Jordan River where he was baptized, and he was led by the Spirit, we've been talking about that the last four weeks, into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Among those temptations, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and then the devil said this, I will give you all their authority and splendor, it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. It's all mine. I give authority whoever I want. I'll give it to you. Of course, the deal is you've got to do it my way. You've got to come under me. Uh, and that, as you know, Jesus wasn't willing to do. Uh, pray with me here for one more moment. Father, let this word come alive. Give it authority, your authority, not mine. Our trust isn't at all in eloquence or speech or any other kind of silliness. It's in you. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, dove, descend here, and uh, we pray, Lord, you'd anoint this message and open our minds and open our hearts to really receive maybe stuff that we've heard before, but it hasn't gotten in yet. Uh, God, help us to be stretched, to be confronted, to have maybe fundamental assumptions uh, that we have about life, to have those things be challenged. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. One of the best ways of getting into the word deeply is to ask questions, especially obvious questions, and not take things for granted. Ask why. So there's three questions I want us to ask that I'm going to try to answer in the course of this message. The first question is, why was Jesus baptized? The second question is, what was the purpose of this heavenly announcement? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the third question is closely related to it, and I'll actually answer these at the same time. And that is, what's up with the dove? Why did the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove? Why not a vulture? Why not an eagle? Why not something else? Uh, A pterodactyl, for crying out loud. Uh, But he comes down in the form of a dove. I want to answer these questions. The first question, why was Jesus baptized? And it's a good question because you wouldn't think Jesus would need to be baptized. In fact, we know that Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Baptism, as we've seen in previous messages on Luke, baptism is about turning from your sin and turning to God. Baptism is about uh, committing to the community of those who are preparing the way of the Lord. Uh, Jesus, of course, uh, was uh, sinless. He didn't need to turn from his sin. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need to get right with God. So why was he baptized? Now, one answer would be simply that he wanted to give an example for all of us to follow. And we're commanded a number of times in the New Testament to follow Jesus' example. And so he says in Matthew, in this, in this episode, he says, John says, why should I baptize you? And Jesus says, well, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it's the right thing to do. And since Jesus is a perfect human being, he always does the right thing. So he sets an example for us. But I believe that there is a deeper reason why Jesus is baptized and it's actually I think hinted at in the passage that we read here Luke notes that all the people were being baptized so Jesus also was baptized and what we're seeing here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry is simply this Jesus puts himself in the place of all people and all people need to repent and be baptized so Jesus puts himself in the position of one who needs to repent And be baptized, even though Jesus himself doesn't need to repent and be baptized. Jesus doesn't, as it were, cash in on his status as a sinless human being and exempt himself from what everyone else needs to do. Rather, Jesus enters into solidarity with the rest of us, and therefore, he does what all of us need to do. He puts himself in the position of one who needs to repent and be baptized. This is actually a fundamental theme that runs throughout the Gospels and, in fact, throughout the entire New Testament. Jesus enters into solidarity with sinners. He doesn't just enter into solidarity with our humanity by becoming a human being, though he certainly does this. But he goes beyond that, and he enters into solidarity not just with our humanity, but with our fallen humanity. This is why throughout his ministry, here at the beginning we're seeing it, we'll see it throughout his ministry, and it culminates in the end. Jesus has a special heart for those who society regards as being the quote-unquote scum of the earth. He enters into solidarity with them. He sides with them. He puts himself in their place. And it all culminates on Calvary, where the Bible tells us that Jesus so enters into identification with us In all of our fallenness and in our rebellion, that he takes on, he absorbs, as it were, all of that rebellion. He absorbs all that sin, and he even absorbs all the punishment for that sin to the point where Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus comes down from heaven and identifies with us in order that we might identify with his heavenly righteousness. And now be seated with him in heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians 1. Jesus sides with sinners. That's the fundamental meaning of his baptism and of his putting himself in the position of one who needs to repent. And what you need to know here this morning is that if you are a sinner, and I have word for you, word of knowledge, you are... If you are a sinner, then you've got to know that Jesus sides with you. He's on your side. He puts himself in your place. Jesus Christ is in your corner. And it doesn't matter what it is that made you a sinner. We all have different varieties of that. That's utterly irrelevant. The reality is is that you are a sinner. You have missed the mark. You have set uh, 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 set yourself against God. And now God himself comes down from his throne and sides with you. Doesn't matter how bad it's been, the wrongs that you've done, how much time you've spent in prison. Doesn't matter how much other people have judged you, other Christians have judged you. Maybe the devil has been all over your own brain judging you. Mom and dad perhaps judge you, but you got to know that Jesus is on your side. He's in your corner. He is your advocate. He's your defense lawyer. He identifies with you. He takes on himself what belongs to you that you might take on to yourself what belongs to him. And the way to get that done is just by accepting it, just by saying yes to it and surrendering your life to it. Now, see, if you understand this, that Jesus sides with sinners, you can understand why Jesus throughout his ministry is so hostile to one group, and that's religious folk. That's the Pharisees. That's those who judge others. Jesus has nothing but compassionate words towards your run-of-the-mill sinners like prostitutes and tax collectors, the two lowest forms of life in the first century by normal social gradation sin scales. But Jesus has nothing, compassion for, nothing but compassion for them. But when it comes to the Pharisees and those who judge others, there's a hostility that is there. But see, if you understand that Jesus identifies with the judged group, you'll understand why Jesus comes against, in very strong terms, the judging group. I want to share an insight I got in London a couple years ago, no, a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago. Man, my life's been crazy lately. I was just over in London, and over there I was with Ichthus Fellowship, and one of my kingdom heroes is Roger Forster. You'll hear me mention his name quite a bit. And uh, uh, the man just oozes with wisdom. I just love to hang around him. I, I just, you know, just get wisdom from him. And um, he was leading this little Bible study for 20 some, 30 some people uh, at 7 in the morning. And I try to make it there to get the crumbs that fall from the master's table, you know, and just soaking up stuff. And he dealt with a passage that I've dealt with a lot. I've preached a lot. I've read it a lot. But he gave me an insight I'd never gotten before. I want to share it with you because it pertains to this whole thing of Jesus identifying with sinners. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 7 Do not judge, or you too will be judged. In other words, if you judge, you're going to be judged. The converse is also true. If you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. I don't know anybody here who's walking around saying, gosh, I want to be judged on the judgment day. Okay, well, if you don't want to be, here's how you avoid that. Don't judge. Don't judge or you too will be judged. And then Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust, that little dust particle in someone else's eye, but pay no attention to. You utterly ignore the plank or the tree trunk, if you will, that's sticking out of your own eye. And then he says, don't give dogs what is sacred and don't throw your pearls to pigs. Okay, let let me just share what I got. Two points here. Number one, Jesus is talking to his disciples. His disciples, by most social standards of sin gradation, where we grade certain sins as more severe and others as less severe, every culture's got it. Well, by most societal standards, the disciples would have been, I'm thinking, a little better than average. They've been following Jesus for some time, they're pretty decent people. Now, we also know from the Gospels that Jesus was a magnet for people like the prostitutes and the tax collectors who were considered to be the lowest of the lows in the first century, the quote-unquote scum of the earth. You couldn't get more vile than they are. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, and all around him there are these prostitutes and tax collectors and adulterers and, and other kind of sinners. And now Jesus says this. He's really, in essence, saying, Do you, for a moment, think that you are one iota holier than they are? Do you think that you are any less sinful than they are? think again. In fact, if you're going to be my disciple, here are your marching orders. You consider their sin, whatever it is, to be a little tiny dust particle. And you consider your own sin, whatever it is, to be a massive tree trunk in comparison to the dust particle. And it doesn't matter how minor your sins are by societal standards, and it doesn't matter how major their sins are by societal standards, to be part of this unique, radical, upside-down, topsy-turvy, beautiful kingdom, you've got to reverse the whole thing, and you consider your sins to be a tree trunk and their sin to be a dust particle. What Jesus is doing here, and it's a beautiful thing, is he's showing us how to collapse our addiction... To what is the original sin? Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whereby we, in an addictive way, pretend like we're God and act like we're judges of the earth. It really is a form of bondage. It's a false form of getting life. And so to free us from that, Jesus gives us these marching orders. And what you'll find is that in the kingdom of God, where the Spirit of God is genuinely moving in people's hearts, where people are being touched by God, you'll find this. As you grow in grace, there is an awareness of how incredible God's mercy is towards you, how wonderful and beautiful God's mercy is towards you. As you grow in grace, you become more and more humble. As you grow in grace, you get freed from this addiction, this need to feed yourself a little bit of worth off of other people by contrasting yourselves with them. And as you grow in grace, there is this impulse to consider yourself the chief of sinners in comparison to other people, and you see this in, in the Apostle Paul in First Timothy when he says this, he says, "I was shown mercy." The Apostle Paul says, "I, who am the worst of sinners." Now, I think that by normal social standards, Paul wouldn't be the worst of sinners. He didn't do like a you know a Gallup poll and find out how sinful everyone was, and found out that he was the worst. And so he's not giving us here a report on objective standards of measuring. He's giving us here the heart of the kingdom. I'm thinking that probably Nero or Caligula or, or you know, Caesar Augustus was a worse sinner than the Apostle Paul. In fact, by social standards, I'm sure the Apostle Paul would come out almost to the top because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he was you know, raised under the law and, and, and he was a holy man. By normal societal standards, Paul would have been a good guy. And yet here Paul is saying... I am the worst of sinners, and yet God had mercy on me. That is a kingdom heart. Now, listen to this. What Jesus is doing here is saying this. You don't like to be judged, right? So if you're going to judge, judge yourself. But the ultimate goal is for you to get sick of even doing that, so you collapse the judgment altogether. It's not like it's godly to walk around saying, I am the most miserable person in the market. I have nothing good in me. That's not godly either. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5, he says, my, you know, I, 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 my conscience is clean, though I know I'm not altogether innocent, but I don't even judge myself. I don't care what other people ju- how other people judge me, and I don't even judge myself. The ultimate goal is to get to the point of freedom where you give up on that whole game, even applying it to yourself. But to get us there, Jesus collapses our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what he's saying here is this. Uh, uh, to get free... Don't for a moment think that your sin is less than someone else's sin. Do you think that you that, that your your gossip is any less sinful than that person's adultery? No, rather c- c- assume the opposite. Do you think that your, that your greed is less sinful than that person's prostitution? Do you think that your tendency towards self righteousness is less sinful than that person's abortion? Do you think that your divorce or your gluttony or your heterosexual lust is less sinful than that person's homosexual orientation? Think again. Rather reverse the whole thing. Consider your own sin to be a tree trunk by comparison. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that if the church, if Christians did this, if a fraction of the church did this, we would be known as the most self-effacing, humble people on the planet, rather than, sadly, the thing that we're most known for, which is being moralizing, self-righteous, self-serving, hypocritical, uh, people who stand on soapboxes and, and make judgments on others. How we need the power of the dove to walk into the humility that God calls us to. And Jesus is saying that when you judge another, you automatically put yourself on the wrong side. Because Jesus is on the side of the judged, not the judger. He sides with the judged against the judgers. And so to free us from that, he says, have this perspective. Before you start thinking, oh, the problem with the world are those sorts of people, the kingdom mindset is to say, now, you know what? If I'm going to start saying what the problem of the world is, the problem of the world is me. And it'll be a 24-7 job for me to fix me. And if I ever get done with that, then I'll think about fixing somebody else. But you know what? I don't think I'll ever be done with that one. (laughs) Fix yourself. Heal thyself, physician. The second point I want to bring out is this. And this is the point where Roger really gave me some insight. Roger in London. What is up with this teaching about not giving pearls to pigs? Why does Jesus all of a sudden say that? Don't judge other people, and don't cast your pearls before pigs. Um, That has always bothered me, to be honest with you. Because it actually looks like Jesus all of a sudden goes into a judgment thing. I always thought Jesus was saying something like this. Don't waste your time with pigs. (laughs) Don't give your wisdom to people who aren't going to appreciate it. Because they're pigs. It's like, Jesus, you just told us not to judge. (laughs) There's something weird here, and sometimes you live for years in, in puzzling verses. Roger really just gave me an insight on this, and I want to share it here. What Jesus is saying, and it's all about his identification with sinners. Jesus is saying this, and it taps right into all this talk about judgment. He says, when you judge another, you take a pearl and you treat it like it was pig's food. That person that you're judging is a pearl of great price. It is, he is She is a precious jewel, a diamond one whom God ascribes unsurpassable worth towards. And when you feed off of them, because that's what we do when we judge, we, we, we contrast ourselves. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like that. The reason we're doing that is we're feeding ourselves a little bit of worth at their expense. But what Jesus is saying is that when you're doing that, you're taking the pearl of their precious character. You're taking the pearl of their worth before God. You're taking the diamond of the destiny that God has for them, and you're treating it like pig's food, and you are the pig. You're feeding off of them. You're treating it like, like, like they were just there for your fodder. Jesus is saying... Treat those people as uh, agree with God about what their worth is. And we see what their worth is when we see Jesus at the end of his life going to Calvary and dying for them. This is a pearl. Every person you see is a diamond that, 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 that shines like the sun. If you could just get your judgments out of the way. Every person you see is one for whom Jesus died. And our job as kingdom people is to agree with God on that. And to do that, we've got to collapse all of our judgment. Stop bringing people through the mud of our judgment and the mud of our opinions and the muck of our religiosity. Because when we do that, we put ourselves in the position of religious pigs. We're religious dogs that are feeding off of people rather than feeding people. And what you got to know is this. That person out there, that prostitute, that scum, quote unquote, scum of the earth, Jesus, when you're judging them, Jesus is on their side. And now he's standing against you. And if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. Jesus sides with the sinners. And he's starting to show that right here at the beginning of his ministry as he's baptized, as one who would need to repent and be baptized. Okay, second question, or set of questions, is this. What's with the announcement from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what is the meaning of the dove? Now we're going to get into this kind of deep. This is exegesis time, interpretation time. So put on your thinking caps. Ready? Ready? You Ready? Okay, here we go. This announcement, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It echoes very clearly two verses in the Old Testament. One is Isaiah 42, 1. The other one is Psalms 2, second chapter of Psalms. I'm going to read the Psalms chapter because it's a little bit more full, but they both have to do with the same themes. These are messianic passages, that is to say passages that deal with the Messiah. And they deal with royalty, they deal with the military, they deal with majesty, and they're about God inaugurating a new king who's going to carry out God's will. And so here's what Psalms 2 says. He, that is to say the Lord, rebukes them, that's his enemies, in his anger and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion. This is an installation ceremony, an inauguration ceremony. I've installed him on my holy mountain, and then David, about whom this is being spoken, he says this: "I will proclaim the Lord's decree." He said to me, "You are my son; today have I become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession." When this voice comes down from heaven, all those who are reared in the Old Testament would have immediately noticed that this is the inauguration saying. The Lord here is saying that this is the Messiah. This is the King. I'm inaugurating this one to be the King of all kings. People understood that the Messiah was to be the fulfillment of all the promises made to kings in the Old Testament. In particular, the promises made to David. That's why the Bible says that the Messiah was to be a Davidic king. He was to fulfill all the things that David foreshadowed. And so with this word from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we are having the Lord here say to all the people, here is your long-awaited king. This is my anointed. This is my chosen one. This is the one who will take back all the nations. This is the one that will fulfill the destiny of Israel. This is the one that will vanquish all of my enemies. This is the one whom my enemies tremble before. And Jesus is now, the people would understand, fulfilling this. In fact, it goes deeper than that. There are four things that the king in the Old Testament, that always happened to the king as they were being inaugurated and Jesus fulfills all of them. First, the king was chosen, chosen by God. Secondly, the king would be confirmed by a prophet. Third, the king would be anointed with oil, which symbolized the Holy Spirit. In particular, it symbolized the anointing of the Holy Spirit to go forth in war, which which led to the fourth thing that always happened, and that is that the king would go out and have a military expedition that they would be given victory for, And that would confirm that this was, in fact, God's anointed. So you see this with David, who was always the prototype for what was to happen to kings. David was chosen by God. David then was confirmed by the prophet Samuel. David was anointed and prayed for with oil, symbolizing the Holy Spirit. And then David, at the age of 15 or so, went forth and defeated Goliath. That's what you do when you're God's king. Jesus is fulfilling all of that. He has been confirmed by God. That's what the voice from heaven's all about. Uh, he's been confirmed by the prophet. That's who John the Baptist is. He, the Holy Spirit is now coming upon him. And as we saw in chapter 4, right after this, he goes forward and does battle against the cosmic Goliath. So Jesus is fulfilling all of this king's stuff. In fact, the fact that he's being baptized in the Jordan River would also contribute to the kind of uh, militaristic, majestic Uh, ambiance of this event because all the people of the time in accordance with Old Testament prophecy they saw the Jordan River as sort of the symbolic thing that divided the people of God from their destiny in the promised land because in the Old Testament when they went into the promised land they had to cross the river Jordan and God supernaturally parted that And the expectation of the time is that when the Messiah comes, he will once again symbolically part the River Jordan. And now Israel will, in military triumph, rise into uh, their calling to regain the promises that God gave them in in, in the Old Testament, which is primarily about becoming a sovereign nation again and and getting the Romans off their back and, and things of that sort. So Jesus fulfills all of the militaristic, majestic, kingly, inaugural stuff. And so the people are saying, here is the king we've long awaited for. Now, there's two things, however, that are very, very different about this narrative. And they go to the heart of the kingdom. And the first has to do with this dove. What's up with the dove? Why does the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove? It doesn't quite fit the military imagery. There's nothing in the Old Testament to get people to expect that a dove would show up. An eagle, you could understand. A vulture, maybe. A pterodactyl, better still. But a dove, there's nothing majestic about it. In fact, the dove would represent... The dove is, is the, among, among the most peaceful animals there are out there. It, 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 doesn't, it, it is the prey of a lot of predators, but it itself is not a predator. And, and more particularly, in the Old Testament, and in fact, in the beginning of the New Testament, the dove symbolizes sacrifice. The dove, this innocent dove, would be sacrificed as a sin offering and other kinds of offerings. And so we saw in the last chapter, in Luke chapter 2, that when Joseph and Mary go to dedicate their child to the Lord, what do they offer? A dove. So this symbolic dove coming down is saying something very, very important that we need to notice. Jesus is fulfilling the role of military Messiah, inaugural king, majestic king. And Jesus, as fits the pattern of the Old Testament, is going to be anointed with God, anointed with the Holy Spirit. But this Holy Spirit is not your routine oil for for military conquest. This Holy Spirit that comes upon Jesus is now going to be the power of dove, which means it's the power to sacrifice, the power to be a sacrifice. This mighty man of God, this mighty chosen one, this military Messiah, is going to be anointed with the power to give his life for his enemies. Is going to be anointed with the power to reveal the true heart of God as he sacrificed for his enemies. This mighty man of God is now receiving the power of almighty, omnipotent God not to vanquish his foes with violence, but to die for his foes and to reconcile his foes back to God. This mighty man of God, militant Messiah, is now being anointed by God to do the one thing that bombs and bullets and swords can never do. And that is to change people radically from the inside out by dying on their behalf when they couldn't deserve it less. This dove totally, radically transforms all the military imagery. Completely transforms it. Because it's saying that Jesus is, in fact, going to get all the nations of the world back for God. Jesus is going to win the world. Jesus is going to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. But he's not going to do it with the power of the sword. He's going to do it with the power of the cross. He's not going to do it Caesar's way. He's going to do it Calvary's way. He's not going to do it by controlling behavior with external restraints and laws and whatnot. But this mighty man of God, militant Messiah, is going to win the world by transforming his hearts through the power of love. This mighty man of God is going to win the world not by killing others, however righteous the cause may be, but by being killed for others, uh, even though their cause is unrighteous. This mighty man of God goes forward not with military lion power. He goes forth with sacrificial dove power. The Savior is, he is the mighty man of God, the great warrior, the incarnation of Jehovah Jireh. And all the military imagery imagery of the Old Testament applies to him. He is a mighty warrior who vanquishes his enemies. But what is all important is that we pay attention to the dove. This one does it through the dove power. He does it through the power of self-sacrificial love. He does it through the power of Calvary. Jesus Christ is going to eradicate all evil from this world, amen? But he's going to do it through the power of self-sacrificial love. He's going to eradicate and destroy all hatred, all violence, all tribalism, all racism, all self-centered greed. He's going to eradicate and conquer all sin. He's going to conquer the devil. He's going to conquer all religion. But he's not going to do it with guns and bombs and tanks and bullets and laws. He's going to do it. He is now doing it. Through the power of Calvary, dying for people who could not do it less, uh, could not deserve it less. What a mighty warrior, what a mighty man of God, robed in armor. But the armor is the armor of Calvary, Christ-like, transforming, powerful love. And he does it through the power of beauty, amen. It could not be better. I. I stand before you, one who has been conquered. I am defeated. I have been vanquished, utterly vanquished by this mighty man of God. But he did not conquer me with threats, and he did not conquer conquer me with coercive power. He didn't just make a decree and turn me into a puppet. Rather, He could have done that. But this one goes to the trouble of conquering me with the power of his unsurpassably beautiful love. That wins my heart and breaks down every wall. And he's still in the process of doing it. This is the heart of the kingdom. This is the center of the kingdom. Not just that you rule, but how you rule whether it's power over rule of Caesar or power under rule of the cross, it is at the center. It's what makes this kingdom radically, radically, radically unlike every kingdom of the world, which is why Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. You can see how central this is to the kingdom of God by noticing what happens in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus goes forward for battle, he fights the devil. And what does the devil go after? The roaring lion... the devil's called that in in 1 Peter. The roaring lion goes for the juggler, and the juggler is not whether or not Jesus is in power, but how Jesus uses power. Notice this. The devil says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But you just got to rule my way, which is Caesar's way, which is a power over way. I'm fine with you ruling. I'll give it to you. Think of all the good you can do, but you got to do it my way. And of course, Jesus decides not to. The devil is trying to get him to trade in his dove power for Caesar power. And that temptation lies at the heart of the kingdom of God. Now notice this. Pay close attention to this. Clearly, the devil doesn't care who's running the show, so long as the person's running it his way. In fact, the devil, far from being concerned about who in particular is in power in a particular area... Far from that, this passage tells us that he's got some influence on that issue. He owns all the authority of the kingdoms of the world. The devil isn't worried about what particular policy will be passed because if Jesus was in charge, we'd have all the righteous policies. He's not too concerned, is he, about what program is there, what candidate is, is, is winning, or what one nation's doing, whether it's righteous over another nation or not. That's not what scares him much. The devil's not Scared of, too worried about the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the righteousness of America. But what scares the devil to hell, I mean it literally, is the love of Jesus Christ expressed on Calvary. That's something he can't stand. And all the trembling foes of Psalm uh, 2, all the, the trembling, the worry comes not when one particular person or one particular party or one particular nation gets the upper hand. But What gets him scared to death is when Calvary-like love is being shed on the cross because there's nothing he can do about that. That is the light that dispels all darkness. That is the love that conquers all evil. That is the goodness of God that vanquishes all foes, which tells us this kingdom person, we've got to trust that your willingness to bleed for people does far more than anyone else's willingness to control people. Your willingness to suffer uh, on behalf in serving a prostitute is 10,000 times more valuable to the kingdom of God than your wanting to pass a law against prostitution. You see, it's about coming under people, not coming over them. And that's what sends the devil running. If the church, if a fraction of the church got this vision and knew what kind of power we're to be striving for and focused on coming under people rather than over people, it would send the devil running. Praise God. Lord, we need your dove power. We need your dove baptism. Give your dove anointing. Send your dove power on us right here and right now. So the thing that totally transforms all the military imagery is this dove. The omnipotent God coming down in the form of a dove. The second thing, and I gotta go fast on this. But <laughs> pay attention to this. Jesus fulfills the requirement that I that the king, the newly inaugurated king, was to go forth and do battle. And all the people are sitting there saying, Whoa, okay, we don't get the dove part, but at least we got a Messiah here. And he's gonna go out and he's gonna defeat Pilate and Caesar and kick some Roman behind and get us free. Got to part the come on, do it, Jesus. And how disappointed they must have been when Jesus, in fact, didn't do that. What Jesus does do is he goes out to the desert. And there he fights a mighty mighty battle. And he fights it against the cosmic Caesar. He fights it against Satan. And uh, he wins that battle. And far from fighting Pilate or fighting Herod or fighting Caesar, he fights the devil. And the way we later learn that he defeats the devil is by... Far from fighting Caesar, he dies for Caesar. And he dies for Pilate. And he dies for Herod. And he lets them crucify him. And that's what ultimately defeats the devil. Kingdom people, our job is to imitate Jesus in all things. Which is why Paul says this. Our struggle struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the uh, rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the kingdom of God battle. As we often say here, but we can't say it enough, if it's got flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. If it's got flesh and blood, it's one that you are commanded by Jesus, Luke chapter 6, and all over the place. You're commanded to love them. And bless them and do good to them, kingdom people. Our enemy is not are, is not the pilots of the world or the Caesars of the world, the Herods of the world. And our enemy is not the liberals or the gays or even the greedy or the racist, the religionist, the abortionist, the communist or the terrorist. Those are the ones we're called to rescue. Those are the ones we're called to die for. The enemies that we fight are the powers, it's Satan and the legions that control this world and hold it under bondage. And the way that we fight them is the way. Jesus fights them. And that is we refuse to go along with their power structure. We opt out of their power system. Following Jesus and empowered with the spirit of a dove, we refuse to go along with the herd as they come under the power of violence and the the principality and power of racism and the principality and power of of, of retaliation and the principality and power of hatred or of greed or of self-protectionism. We refuse to go along with the powers. Rather, in Jesus' name, following the example of Jesus and anointed with the power of the dove, we commit to living in Christ-like love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. That's how we do warfare. We commit to sharing our resources with those who have less than they need. That's how we do warfare. We commit to to tearing down racial divides uh, and not going along with cultural, systemic forms of racism. That's how we do warfare. We commit to not living in self-centered materialism. That's how we do warfare. We live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We commit to, as the Bible commands us, never return Evil with evil, but always returning evil with good and blessing our enemies. That's how we do warfare. And every drop of blood we shed for others, whether it's literal or figurative, every sacrifice we make, it advances the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. We go forward in dove power, not military lion power. Now, let me close with this. I understand that whenever I say this message uh, it, it, it ruffles some feathers And, and, there's, there, and I understand it and, and there's some who just It just doesn't seem right It doesn't seem practical We're sp- Aren't we supposed to fix the world? And to do that we decide that we're in a wiser Morally superior position But here's part of the resistance This requires us to do the hardest thing possible The way of the dove is the hardest way there is This requires us to crucify our flesh. The flesh is our fallen world orientation with all of its assumptions, with all of its false ways of getting life. If we're going to walk this walk, that flesh has to be crucified. Our flesh wants so badly to have human, identifiable, clear-cut enemies Our flesh feeds off of that. It is life to the flesh. Our flesh needs religious enemies that we can contrast ourselves with and feel good about. You know, to compare ourselves with and feel righteous. Our flesh needs our, these religious enemies. Our flesh so badly wants personal enemies that we can gossip about and feel righteous doing it. Our flesh so badly wants social enemies that we can blame all the problems with society on. Our flesh needs scapegoats, and that's why we, we've always had scapegoats. Our flesh craves that. Our flesh doesn't want for a moment to believe that I'm the problem with the world. No, you're the problem with the world, and I can feed myself on that. Our flesh so badly wants to to have, and needs, it's got to have like a piranha craving of meat. It it wants to have national enemies that we can rally around and feel righteous over and against. It's the very structure of the flesh. This is why most sociologists will tell you that you can't have a united group unless you've got a united enemy that you stand against, and it's identifiable. So you can feel righteous over and against them. The core of the flesh mindset and it has run throughout history and is responsible for most of the blood in the world, is this. I know I'm righteous, and if you agree with me, you're righteous, and we the righteous and the wise need to take a stand against those sinners who are screwing things up. We need to fix the world because we're in a superior position to do that. And that mantra is what's made the wonderful, the wonderful merry-go-round with all of its bloodshed go on throughout history as one person and one tribe and one nation and one religion kills and slaughters another. And the heart of the kingdom of God is opting out of that and saying, whatever sin I see in that person, that's a little dust particle. And society will say, but look out, it's so so bad, it's so, it's so terrible. No, no, you know what, it's a dust particle. I am the worst of sinners. And the problem with the world is me, not them. And I consider it an honor to wash their feet. And the heart of the kingdom is crucifying that flesh that feeds off of other people in order that you can get life from God and feed other people. And the heart of the kingdom is going forth in dove power and living this kingdom. The heart of the kingdom of God is refusing to give in to the principalities and powers, but rather living a radically different way of life that shows people an alternative way of doing things that is attractive, that is beautiful, and that grows the kingdom of God. And it's all about replicating Calvary. I end with this question. Let's bring it down, make it practical. Who in your life do you need to have a heavy dose of dove power towards? Which is to say, who in your life, maybe a relative, maybe someone... It's not a relative. Maybe someone lives close. Maybe someone lives a long time ago. Maybe it's someone in the present. Maybe it's someone in the past. But who is it that pushes your flesh button? And are you willing to crucify that and receive the power of the dove to live in the power of Calvary-like love sent to you from God above? I had to complete the poem. I just had to do it. Think about that.